Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. How you doing this morning, Marshall? I'm good. Got my coffee. Ready to go. Rare early morning podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We don't normally do them this early. We're usually kind of an afternoon crew, but hey. Gotta sh- sometimes you got to shake things up and you got to live. That's right. <laughs> that's right. You got to live on living on the edge. That's how I do <laughs> things. Yeah, for and sure. And this is the edge for me these days. Yeah. <laughs> I had such a busy day yesterday that it was... Uh, the study for this episode was cramming late late last night and early this morning. <laughs> same here. Same here. Not only busy day yesterday, busy day today too. Oh, yeah. But let's do the thing. Mm-hmm. We are in the 13th century. Yes, that's right. So, uh, some interesting events and characters in the 13th century. Church history is kind of mm-hmm. moving on through the, I guess we're kind of into the high middle ages now, which is kind of a subdivision of the middle ages as a whole yeah i think i think we're gonna start seeing some some of the cracks of dawn right this week <laughs> yeah yeah and it's interesting and we I, we'll get into it a little more later but part of it is actually as a result of the crusades there there is a positive element that comes out of it that there is a new contact with the eastern world mm-hmm. and so knowledge that was kind of over there and out of the way for hundreds and hundreds of years is yep. now kind of pouring back into Europe uh, to kind of inform and adjust a lot of the learning on a variety of things, theology, philosophy, medicine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's a crawling out of those, those dark ages that, that is definitely in full swing by this point. Yeah, which just kind of makes sense. I mean, you you look at the idea, the concept of big fish, little pond, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? When when you're only really exposed to those around you, you, you may be thinking like, we're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. We've we've got this under control and, and we're doing great. And then you go and you get some exposure to what other people are up to and you're like, wow, we are way behind. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even realize how far we had fallen. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it, part of that is that the Muslim world had been sitting on top of some of the greatest libraries in the world, mm-hmm. in Alexandria, and in Antioch, and Damascus, and some of these other places in the East. And so all of these writings of ancient philosophers and theologians and even church fathers right. that were lost to the West are suddenly pouring in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bit of that. But let's let's uh, let's maybe give some people... An idea of things that are going on in the world in the 13th century. Do you have anything? I no, I didn't come with a. That's okay. a Random things going on. I got a few. No, I got a few. Em. I got a few. Uh, in 1206. Thanks for throwing me under the bus. By y- the way. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, in 1206, Genghis Khan becomes the great Khan of the Mongols, mm. and within 20 years, he expands the territory that he controlled exponentially that's a great reference point because i would have placed genghis earlier yeah that's fascinating a lot of people mix him up with hannibal Mm -hmm. who was much much earlier and not lector right not lector no no so genghis khan is is pretty is pretty late yeah it's pretty late so within 20 years he expands the territory to a land mass that was significantly greater than anything rome ever controlled 
stretching from Eastern Europe to Korea. Mm-hmm. Massive, massive. And that empire will remain unified for the majority of this century before being broken up into a bunch of different kind of somewhat cooperative, sometimes feuding Mongol states. But the Mongols become the dominant force in the world for, for a long time and, and threaten Europe. Um, they never quite get all the way in, um, but they were they were devastating. Again, nomadic horse archers. It's like until until they get machine guns, it's like horse archers are the baddest thing you can have on the battlefield. They're the jet fighters of the ancient world. <laughs> they are. They are. Um, okay, 1215, Magna Carta is signed by King John. This is a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Magna Carta means the Great Charter of Freedoms in, in Latin, essentially. Um, it was drafted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the reason it was drafted was because King John of England uh, was not well-liked. Uh, he was he was not a good monarch. And for that reason, there were a number of rebellious barons and noble houses in England that were fighting against him. And so this was kind of laying out some, some rights and responsibilities and... Um, was a way to kind of try to end the conflict. Um, so it addressed rights of the church and then rights of the nobility f- kind of from the king, you know, right to a trial by jury of your peers, um, protection against unlawful imprisonment limits on how long you can be held before a trial. Um, those types of of rights and responsibilities, I guess. Yeah, and these things aren't a f- historical first. No. They... They have. They were a part of Rome. Mm-hmm. They were a part of Greece before, mm-hmm. right? These things have existed for a very long time. Mm-hmm. The idea that the state, the governing body, owes something of a guarantee to its people. Yeah. But as we talk about how far things had fallen in the Dark Ages, yeah. that there would be a document signed in Europe that would say nobility can't just do whatever they want to. Mm -hmm. And that'd be a groundbreaking thing. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very much a return to principles uh, from, like you said, Roman and and Greek law. Um, And that's where, that's where I say, this is a bit of a dawning of light. Yeah. Right. It is, it is a bit of that return in a way that that now all of a sudden we have social order, mm-hmm. whereas before it's just whatever king and bishop are going to arm wrestle over who's going to convince the populace to rebel against the other. Right, right. <laughs> that's that's what it's been for a couple of hundred years now. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that they're actually practicing, not democracy. No, no, not not even close. not Greek democracy. No but that they are practicing government responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least you're doing something. Yeah, limits on authority, right? Um, and so here's the thing. The thing is, while the Magna Carta itself isn't really in force anymore, like what's outlined in that document isn't you know, being held up in courts of law exactly as it was written today, it's still a foundational document for how English law is going to develop. And and that's important, I mean, for us in this part of the world because both Canada and the States, our legal systems are heavily, heavily based after 
English law. So this is, you know, this is the foundation of, of, you know, jury by peers and, and all these other kind of rights that we, that we take for granted. The beginnings of them are, are starting to be articulated, um, back in 1215 or the returns of them i guess you yeah there would enough. be there would be jury by peer mm -hmm. going back into even the ancient near east true yeah no that's um, a good point so into the bcs but, yeah but the western return of these things mm -hmm. we see and and this is a really big deal mm -hmm. and and for those of you that's like john i i don't know who who john is we haven't talked about him if you're over 35 He's the scrawnier lion whose <laughs> crown never quite fit on his head and had his sidekick of a snake. Right. In, in Disney's Robin Hood. Do, 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 do. That's that's one of my that's one of my top two Love it. Disney movies. Um also in this century, towards the end of it, uh, we have the travels of Marco Polo. Who yes. Traveled along the Silk Road. To China and hung out there for a while and did some tours all over the place. Basically brought everything. Like anything that you can be like, where did this come from? Mm. Just be like Marco Polo. <laughs> and it, when you look at Italy, like noodles? Yeah, yeah, no. Marco true. Polo. Yeah. Pizza? Yeah. Was pizza invented in Italy? I don't know. Marco Polo brought it back with him. Did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Version, versions of it. Okay, well that's right? cool. I even heard, I, this is going way... I'm happy to be proven wrong. Fact checkers, do your thing. Yeah. I I remember being told one time that tomatoes weren't even really a part of the Italian diet until Marco Polo came. Really? Yeah. I'm a little nervous that I even said that, even though I said I know that, but I, I do remember hearing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Can you imagine Italian food before noodles and right. <laughs> tomatoes? Yeah. And uh, so over there in China, um, they're uh, using landmines and handguns for the first time in warfare. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's crazy, man. It's like way ahead of its time. Um, no, no, way ahead of our time. Uh, our time, as I guess. the West. Yeah, sure. No, you're right. Um, eyeglasses are invented in Venice mm -hmm. in the 1280s. Um, and just before the end of this century... We get the first war of Scottish independence. So the English decide they're going to go up there and take Scotland. And they're going to essentially keep fighting each other for like 500 years uh, until that, that whole thing calms down. But uh, as someone with uh, ancestors on both sides of that border, uh, who, according to my grandfather, did genealogical work, they killed each other, some in the name of the English and some in the name of the Scottish. It's interesting for me. Mm -hmm. So getting into the actual church history focus on church history for the 13th century i think we have to spend some time talking about a really influential figure whose name is saint francis of assisi i love francis yeah he's such an interesting person yeah he is he's he's quirky right yeah. right he's not like bernard de clairvaux where you see this sort of like mastermind thing at play, mm -hmm. right? Where he's just Augustine kind of a thing, right? Like these just super gifted writers mm -hmm. that are the kind of person you'd be like, I want that person to be my mentor, my teacher, you know, my professor, my pastor, whatever. Francis is, is quirky. Yeah. And you could see someone wanting him as a friend. Sure. 
And maybe even as a pastor. Maybe. Because he does have this sort of like really warm heart, mm. charitable thing going. Mm-hmm. But he's a different kind of cat. <laughs> yeah, he is. So he's born in 1181. And his father was a wealthy Italian silk merchant. And St. Francis lives the lavish and boisterous life of a wealthy young man, you know, fascinated with the troubadours and the poetry and the music. And and he's said to have been handsome and smart and he dressed in expensive clothes and he he spent a lot of his father's money. Um, And there's a story that kind of starts to kick things off where... A beggar comes to him while he's in the marketplace right. and asks for alms, asks for some money. And and uh, Francis has to kind of finish his transaction, but then he chases after this, this beggar and just gives him everything he's got on him, which infuriates his father. Oh, yeah. And it's not the last time he's going to upset his dad. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not. Um a couple years later, he's about 20 years old. He's involved in this military conflict with the neighboring city-state because, remember, Italy is not Italy. It is a dozen or more city-states that are constantly feuding with each other. Okay, hold on. This is an important thing that needs to be highlighted even before you say it. Okay. This man is a man of extremes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because, because when we talk about Francis of Assisi... Mm-hmm. We're talking about, as I already said, a very warm-hearted, sure. charitable, giving, loving of all things around him kind of man, mm-hmm. who, in his late teens and early 20s, was trying to get on board with the Knights Templar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as, not as the 90%, but as the 10% right. of fighting men. Yep. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, Ed was very lavish in his lifestyle and and all these things. So he ends up getting taken captive in this conflict and held for a year. And eventually he, he gets ransomed and gets to go back home and initially kind of goes back to his, his old ways and seems to be kind of heading off for another military campaign. Um, but then he has this vision or he claims to have this vision. So many visions and dreams in the middle ages. Yeah. Lots of them. Yeah. And you're just, yeah, I don't know why, but, he had a vision, apparently. And so he decides to go on a pilgrimage to Rome, and uh, and he's begging while he's there. He's kind of living amongst the poor, uh, you know, deciding to do so, because um, he doesn't have to, because he's extremely wealthy, or his father is at least. Um, and he has another vision of Christ telling him to repair his church, which uh, Francis took to mean the chapel that he happened to be praying in. So he goes and sells some of his father's stuff, tries to give the money to the church. The local priest refuses it, and so he throws the money on the ground, um, storms out. Francis' father finds out that he's done this and just beats him and locks him in a storeroom. (laughs) And then takes him to court. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And so he's taken before court, and that's where he renounces his father. He renounces his inheritance, allegedly strips himself naked, to pay his dad back. Yeah. He's just like, here, you want all this stuff? Here's everything. You want your silk? Here's your silks. Yeah, to the point where like the bish- the local bishop had to like throw his cloak over him. He's like, son, <laughs> this this is not decent. I'm telling you, a quirky man of extremes. Yeah, very weird. So he then he goes back to his begging and he specifically begs for stones to to repair this dilapidated chapel. So he like he 
I, which I don't know what begging for stones looks like. Like, excuse me, sir, do you have any spare <laughs> stones lying around? I mean, you know what? In our backyard, we've just cleared out. I, I don't even know what it was. Some kind of attempt at a rock garden. And so, I mean, we could have helped him out. He probably could have used some stones from our backyard. May, maybe, maybe stones as a building material makes it a specific kind of stone that he was looking for. Maybe, yeah, that and makes not sense. just sir. Can I have that rock? That yeah, by your foot, like the equivalent of like bricks or something. Anyways, uh, so he, but yeah, so he, then he starts repairing that chapel, and he just do, does this for like a couple of years. He's just like begging for stones to repair, you know, old church buildings. Um, and he starts to preach to the poor peasants, but, ooh, but, but, but he does so without a license. Right. Uh Oh, right. Um, so that, that gets him some less than positive attention from the established church, but he attracts a following and these people, they all renounce their wealth and they're traveling the countryside and they, they preach as part of their gospel. They preach the gospel, but they also preach the necessity of forsaking worldly goods. Like you, you must right. give up. All it is wealth. a cynicism. It is for sure. Yeah. yeah, and and that, if you don't know that, what that is, that is the necessity to deprive yourself mm-hmm. physically in order for spiritual gain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not only not only depriving in some instances and in, in more extreme instances, deprivation wasn't suffering enough because the body would become accustomed to deprivation, and so they would injure themselves for the purpose of just needing to feel that pain again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, he, as he's, as his following is growing, he decides to go to Rome to get permission from the Pope to found a new religious order. And there's a particular Cardinal who is so impressed with him, a Cardinal who ends up becoming the Pope later on. Uh, but he speaks on his behalf and he gets permission to establish the Franciscan order in the year 1210. And they're originally known as the Lesser Brothers. Um, what's interesting about Francis is he is ordained, but he's ordained as a deacon, not a priest. Mm-hmm. He never actually becomes a priest or a bishop or anything more important than that. Um, and yet his influence does end up being significant. Um, so he wants to bring his new spin on Christianity abroad. So he tries to sail to Jerusalem, but he's shipwrecked. He then tries to go to Morocco, but he gets sick in Spain and has to return. But finally, he does get his shot to preach to the non-believers, and he decides he wants to preach the gospel to the Sultan of Egypt. And so, which aim high? Yeah, I guess. So he joins up with a crusading army, and then he and a few companions secretly cross enemy lines and allow themselves to be taken captive, so that he can go preach to the Sultan. What? That's Pauline stuff. Oh man, yeah, that's 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 serious stuff. Not not that that's the kind of thing that the back half of what Paul would do. I don't think Paul would do the whole conspire to be captured thing. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. No, Paul Paul escapes actually on a couple of occasions. So, but there are you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing with a lot of these stories with St. Francis and with other medieval saints. The sources are sketchy. Right, so we're going to hear stories. You and I are going to say things that may or may not have happened. So this, he probably saw the sultan, but we don't really know. But some sources claim that the sultan secretly converted or chose to be baptized on his deathbed. Yeah, Those sources are Christian sources from after the life of Francis of Assisi 
there are no Muslim sources that say that the Sultan of Egypt converted to Christianity. So, right, there's, take it for what it is. There's this desire in the Catholic Church. I, I would say there's a human desire to elevate your people. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because in elevating your people, you're elevating yourself. Right. Right? Right. And, and so in order for these very famous and influential people of the church to become the saints and the legends, things get out of hand. I mean, so you mentioned that he was influential. Mm -hmm. Although he never became a priest or a cardinal or he never was a pope, he was more influential than any pope of his time. Oh, yeah, for sure. The guy ends up being the patron saint of Italy. Yeah. The patron saint of Italy which is in the Catholic Church, the home of the church <laughs> right. since Peter himself. Right. And this guy gets patron saint of Italy yeah. and animals. <laughs> yeah, he gets a lot. And not just animals. Later, Pope John Paul II gives him ecology. Oh, ecology, yeah. When Which, the world starts understanding yeah. the idea of being greener. So yeah. he's a... He was busy then. He's busy now, apparently. It's funny that he would become the patron saint of something that he would have had no notion of whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he was given to nature, and it's it's essentially the same thing, but... Right. Yeah. But it'd be like if if some, like, church father, like, Origen, you know, became, like, the patron saint of, like, space travel or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, what? (laughs) Right. Maybe not quite that, but... His concept of depravity... Mm. the the need for depravity some of the some of the guys of his time mm. would tease that he couldn't be a monk because he was married um and they would say poverty is his bride right that's yeah. his love that's his passion mm-hmm. um that he's just fallen in love with this concept of poverty that that came from hearing a sermon where Jesus told the disciples, go and take nothing with you, not any gold or silver. Mm-hmm. You know, later on in the book, he does tell them, go, but this time take stuff with you. Yeah, take money, take a sword. Yeah, he would, <laughs> no. Francis had already set his path, Yeah, and he was gone. Yeah. On the list of things with sketchy sources. Okay. <laughs> Preach the gospel at all times. Oh, yeah. And when necessary, use words. Yeah, he probably didn't say There is that. no record I know. of Francis saying this. Yeah. In fact, Francis is the kind of guy who would become arrested so that he could preach the gospel mm-hmm. to a sultan. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. The guy, the yeah. guy was speaking the gospel. Yeah. And even famously... Preached the gospel to animals. That's how he became the patron saint of animals. He preaches the famous sermon to the birds. Right. Right? He is speaking the gospel at all times. Yeah. Using words at all times. Yeah. He never confuses charity and kindness for the gospel. Right. Yet he gets tagged with this thing. And, And here's why people love this. People love this because either they're afraid of having the gospel pushed on them. Yep. And so they're like, 
well, you should be more like Francis. Mm-hmm. Check this out. This is inspiring. And basically what it means is leave me alone. Right. Just be nice to me and right. don't ever tell me that I'm wrong or need anything. Right. Um, don't tell me about your, your faith or your Jesus. Just be nice. Yeah. And that would be persuasive. <laughs> or on the flip side, Christians mm-hmm. who are afraid of sharing their faith mm-hmm. and want a righteous excuse to not... Yeah, yeah. Right? They're like, able to pat themselves on the back. I'm not Catholic. There's a lot of stuff that Francis did that I would call weird, yeah. but that right there is my, my life's yeah. motto. Yeah, even though he didn't do it. In fact, right. devoted his life right. to doing the opposite. That's my that's my life's motto, <laughs> so um, although I don't agree with most of the other yeah. stuff that he did. I It's one of those things I, I have to, in my own personality, is like not always jump on when I hear something that's not true. Sometimes you just got to let it slide, but that's when I just won't. Yeah. Every time someone brings it up, I'm like, actually, it's anti-gospel. Actually, he didn't say that. Actually, his life story is completely opposed to that. And even if it was true, you shouldn't believe it. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Jesus specifically said, preach the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Paul talks That's about the like, great commission. How, how will they know? How will they believe yep. unless they know? And how will they know unless someone tells them? Right. Right. So like. Let's not get into this nonsense. Um, so he, when when um, Francis returns to Europe from his little escapade in Egypt, he has a bit of a problem because his movement is so popular. It's grown so much, but there's no structure to it whatsoever. It's just a bunch of people choosing to be poor and wandering around and doing weird stuff. Yeah, because organization is part of that big thing. Yeah. yeah. Right? So So the concept of fundraising and organizing and all of that is essentially mm-hmm. against the establishment that he's trying to put forth as an ideal. Mm-hmm. So it works it's it works fine enough as a personal <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. But when he's got thousands of people that are in on it, mm-hmm. they need some guidance. Right. Yeah. So towards the end of his life, um, you know, he's Again, very popular, but kind of sticks to this kind of, we'll call it, I mean, quirky is probably the most endearing way to describe it. Sure. <laughs> the quirky lifestyle. He has a long period of fasting in in advance of something called Michaelmas, which reading through the lives of the saints and you have, or like Roman Catholic history, and you have all these references to all these like feasts and special, it's like, wait, so you're going to fast for 40 days before some random feast. It's like, how many feasts happen within those four? Absolutely. Days? How do you keep up with it all? Or do Absolutely. you just choose this year I'm going to make a big deal of these three and the next year I'm going to make a big deal of those and maybe Easter and Christmas are a big deal every year. It's just so strange to me and I can't wrap my mind around it. Hold on a second. I, I want to see what today's Oh yeah. Catholic feast. Let's see if we can find what today's Googling on the air is always good radio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so one of the cool things, so the, the feast day of Francis of Assisi, while you're looking that up, uh, is happens to be my wedding anniversary, October the well, 4th. Well, there you go. I know. And I didn't even know. So actually, we're going to be on vacation this year on my anniversary. So I'll have to, <laughs> I was going to say, venerate. I'm not going to venerate Francis. So I was going to read for you the saint of the day. Okay. Uh... But the commemorations for today 
mm-hmm. conversion of St. Augustine is on the list. What? That's cool. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, What are you counting? 43 saints. Oh my goodness. Share this day as their feast day. As their day of recognition and feasting. <gasps> Either I'm saints or events, but only seven of them are events. Wow. I mean, some of it must be like localized, right? It like, have to be. It, yeah, like it's like, you know, you have you know, you're one of the few like Norwegian saints. And so like it's a big deal in Norway, but no one in Italy cares. Or, right. I don't know. Right. But we digress. Yeah, we anyways, we we digress. So um, near the end of his life, he's he's go- gone through this long period of fasting, and he's said to have received a vision and to have received something called the stigmata. Yes. So what the stigmata is, is the appearance of, and sometimes the literal appearance of, the same wounds that Christ suffered during his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Hands or wrists, feet, side. Um, apparently he suffered from these wounds. He receives these wounds at, during his fasting and through a vision, another vision through another vision. Yeah. We got to throw that one in. Um, and he would never fully recover from these wounds and would die at the ripe old age of 44. And he's pretty skilled at hiding these. Apparently nobody, nobody really has record of seeing them, mm-hmm. but after he dies, mm-hmm. There are a couple of people who report yeah. having witnessed them. Um, what are your thoughts on stigmata? I don't think it's real. Why would you? So here's the thing. Yeah. Christ bore the wounds on our behalf, right? Now, there is there is a sense. Like, I could see why a, a medieval church that is obsessed with physical signs and mysticism and all these things might get hung up on this through a misapplied reading of the Bible, right? Of suffering like Christ does, carrying your cross, right? Being crucified with Christ. So they're taking that to mean like, hey, look, if we can, if some people can actually have the the same exact same wounds in the exact same spot as Jesus had on the cross, that's evidence that they have truly devoted their life to Christ. Um, But that's, I just, just, a wrong way of reading those passages, I think. So yeah, I don't think this actually happened. Yeah, and even even to have God supernaturally put those scars and wounds on you mm-hmm. would be to symbolize this person also bore with Christ in mm-hmm. such a way that would make it atoning, yes. which is just yeah. much. Yeah, so Francis's legacy, I mean, obviously... You know, in his Franciscan order, there's the necessity of poverty. You you, you are required to forsake worldly riches um, to an extreme. Um, but, you know, Francis was also known for recognizing the beauty of God in nature. You mentioned the Sermon to the Birds. Um, he's, at, in fact, typically in, in Catholic art is portrayed with birds around him in paintings and statues. Very Mary Poppins. With the whole like <laughs> Very Mary, yeah, yeah. Birds all over you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what's, what's also interesting is that uh, after his death, the he must have made some kind of impact when he was with the, the Sultan because after his death, the Franciscan order of monks 
were the only ones who were allowed to remain in the Holy Land. So they were actually, they were given a, a small bit of territory and allowed to kind of remain in Israel. They're not intimidating. No, they're not going to take anything from you. They're not going to develop a power. Yeah. They have no show of power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the same time as Francis, and, and I won't go, we won't go into it at the same level of detail, but um, there's another order of monks that kind of comes in at the same time, the Dominican order. And they also kind of do this n- neglecting riches, but what they tend to do is they focus on ministering in the growing cities rather than secluding themselves from society. And the reason I just introduced them is because the Franciscans and the Dominicans both will play an important role in something we'll talk about um, shortly here. And and people will ask, is the Republic then named for the Dominican order? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. 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 So um, let's talk about, let's talk about Pope. Pope not so innocent. Pope not so innocent. Um, I think this one's the third. There's a few. There's a couple innocents that show up in 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 this episode. Um, Pope Innocent is could be known for a few things: Um, a continuing increase in papal authority. Um, You know, kind of being heavily involved in in politics outside of the church. Um, he, I think it's, I think you can kind of capture his agenda most significantly in the fourth Lateran council, which is a council that he calls, um, where he kind of lays out what he thinks. So where church councils before, when we talk about the council of Nicaea, those types of councils, right? These are bishops from all over coming together to discuss, you know, difficult subjects of theology and and just other matters that need to, to be play off of each other yeah yeah and kind of come to uh, if not a consensus at least get a major where the majority the is modern at. world would call it a think tank yeah sure yeah the by this point these church councils are are not that at all no this is the pope calling all his bishops in and saying here's where i'm at and all this stuff and the bishops say sounds good we'll yep. we'll go make right. sure it happens yeah that's a good description um, and so this fourth Lateran council that's called in 1215 is, is perhaps the most important church council of the middle ages, because there are some significant adjustments and changes that are made. Um, this is where we get transubstantiation laid out kind of fully. Yeah. The, it had already been a discussion. Yep. But this is where it gets the blueprint it becomes dogma now yeah. right that the the bread and the wine of the lord's supper become the actual body and blood of christ not symbolic not spiritual presence physical literal blood physical literal flesh of jesus christ himself which is a teaching by the way that francis was pretty on board with yep his respect for yep. the local priest was incredible Mm -hmm. because he was so moved that they had been blessed by God with this kind of power. Yeah. There are problems with the idea of transubstantiation. Right. Um, And I'm glad as a, as a Baptist pastor, (laughs) 
and staff of this church. I'm glad to hear you say that. There, there, are, there are some problems. Um, okay, and and some of them are more significant than others. But first, firstly, uh, I'll just say that Christ now has a literal physical body. Um, he is resurrected in his resurrected state in his glorified body. He does have a physical body, and it is present at the right hand of the Father, and it is not subdivided into every Roman Catholic church across the face of the world. Um, the biggest problem in my mind, and, and maybe you can jump in on this too, the biggest issue for me for transubstantiation with the bread and the blood uh, becoming the literal um, body and blood of Christ is that in within Catholic doctrine, they are, they are re-sacrificing Christ each right. time. That, and, and they want it to be that. Mm-hmm. Right, because you need your top up. The initial, the initial sacrifice of Christ on the cross, your faith in that is able to get you back to, you know, bring you back into the good books. But throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your month, however long it is before you take the Lord's Supper, you can you can fall from that state of grace. And so, Christ's blood is poured out again. His body is broken again, right? Each and every mass, so that you can get your top up and get back into. A better state. Although the author of Hebrews calls him our once and for all sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the big one. E- even without getting into the technical side of it, but mm-hmm. even on the technical side of it, if we want to, just for fun, mm-hmm. uh, when Jesus says, "This is my body, which is broken for you," they're gonna they're gonna hammer really hard on the this mm-hmm. or the is. Is must mean something other than is. That's always the argument, right? Right, right. Uh, even from the Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing to make us think that the disciples were eating anything other than bread. Right. Right? So right. in that moment, the is would be more powerful than it is now even. <laughs> right. Because right. his body was literally there yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. So It's like Jesus. Like they just act as though Jesus doesn't know what a metaphor is um, or wasn't capable of using them. Um, anyways. Um, so th- that's not the only thing that's discussed at the Lateran Council. They, they're, they're dealing with, you know, with heresy that had risen up. Um, there's this really weird one by this guy named, uh, Joachim of Fior, who believed that there were three ages, the age of the father, which was the old Testament, the age of the son, which just happened to go up into the 1200s. And then the age of the spirit, which was about to come where there's going to be a new world order and the he had this really strange um, kind of eschatology where like the church is replaced by another group of people who are going to receive a different degree of spiritual power. And so they, they, they declare that as heresy. Um, they also talk about how to deal with heretics in general. And um, we'll get into how they decided to do that shortly. But um, I mean, there are, there are all these rules for priests. I guess maybe some of the priests... In the medieval ages were, were getting distracted. So, you know, rules that, okay, make sense. No drunkenness for priests. Sure. Good rule. Paul right? agrees. Paul agrees. No hunting. Okay. All right. No gambling. Fair enough. No attending the theater. Communion bread and wine must be kept under lock and key. Attending the theater would also be agreed with by Augustine. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Actually, it would be agreed with by a lot of people up until fairly recently um, for, yeah, for various reasons. But um, the communion bread and wine must be kept under lock and key. Of course they must. 
right? Mm-hmm. I, there was strict penalties if you were if you even just forgot to lock it up, let alone if something bad happened to it, like somebody got into it and ate some of it or drank some of it. Uh, because if this is the literal body and blood of Christ, right. you're mishandling that. Um, tithe payments have priority over all other taxes and fees. So, so in the do you tithe your net or your gross? Pope Innocent would have said the gross, which is a play on every king around. <laughs> right? Yeah, it totally was. Yeah, totally was. Um, Jews and Muslims have to dress differently. They have to dress in a unique way. And the reasoning is so great. The reasoning for it is so that people don't accidentally marry them. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like there's there's a cultural gap there. There's something that I'm not understanding. Like like no, you got to you got to dress differently. Why? So that you don't accidentally like mar- marry one. Like I what? But here's here's the you presumption. You could just change your outfit. <laughs> here's the know. presumption of his reach. Right. Right. Because he is the head of the church, mm-hmm. the bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. Whether he's in Rome or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. This one might have been. He's the bishop of Rome. Right. And so they've already made the reach to say, as God's authority, Christian kings mm-hmm. will answer to us. Yeah. Even here saying, if someone's poor, their tithe matters more than their taxes, king. Yep, and you've gone against the will of God if you require taxes of them, mm-hmm. if they can't pay us, right? As well, uh, but now he's reaching into other religions mm-hmm. and being like, "You guys also." At, to, at which point they're probably just looking at him, going, "Who are you?" <laughs> right? That would be like you walking up to a stranger's kid mm-hmm. and just being like, "Did I tell you that you could wear those shoes today?" No, you need to wear these shoes. And their parents would just be like, someone call the police. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. But it goes to show, right, that that this division between secular and religious authority, which is apparently laid down in these as well, is isn't really muddy because Oh yeah. Because those types of things, those are those aren't you're you're dictating dress for people who don't even call themselves Christian. There are there are pastors. I've I've Talked with people before who who talk about things like they need to get their their engagement blessed by their pastor. So like not only do you ask mm. the father of the woman you want to marry, you also ask your pastor, "Is it okay if we do this?" Mm. And I've heard people say, well, "I want to go to this university, but first I need to okay that with my pastor, Oof. as if he has some spiritual insight." That's exactly what's going on That's here, weird, yeah. and it's gross. Today, mm-hmm. it was gross then too. Yeah, I think Henry agrees. Yeah, Henry definitely agrees. <laughs> if no one else agrees with me, yeah, Henry does. Yeah, yeah, Henry the Emperor uh, was not a big fan of Innocent the Third, and they went back and forth, and that's why, in part, he he elects anti popes. He's like, well, I don't like what this pope's doing, so we're gonna have our own pope over here. He said, what? <laughs> Oh man! Meanwhile, while all of these things have been going on, Francis. Oh, sorry. This is just people walking around with hats that say "Not my Pope." <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how little people change. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it's incredible. 
So while all of this is going on, just just for historical context here, and maybe we can talk about a little bit. While all this is going on, there's there are still there are still crusades happening. Um, they all achieve virtually nothing. Oh man, they're all just a big waste of time. Nothing is gracious. No, because sometimes they're catastrophe. Oh my goodness, yes. Sometimes nothing would have been a day and night kind of improvement. Yeah. Mm. The Children's Crusade, a little French, uh, allegedly. Mm -hmm. Again, medieval sources are sketchy. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) This is true. (laughs) A French boy and possibly a German boy at the same time. Okay. uh, Inspired by God to start preaching as children. Um, Understand when we say children... We're talking about some of these people who are real world changers dying, like you said, at 44. Yeah. So the age expectancy is lower. So when they say children, yeah, they're talking. Prepubescent. Yeah. Children. Um, Starts preaching. They have grown up with stories of the Crusades. They hear the talk at the dinner table, and they decide that God has called them as children to go and be his representatives. In a passive, peaceful, uh, diplomatic means of uh, convincing everyone that this land belongs to the Christians Mm. and that they should just leave. And so they rally hundreds of children whose parents allow them to go because signs and visions Mm -hmm. and it must be the will of God Mm -hmm. still, still in the dark ages. Still given to those superstitions. Yeah. Uh, allegedly, the kids make it to the shore to board a ship that would take them over there, but just loads them up and sells them all into slavery. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this is the Middle Ages, folks. Um, the last thing we'll talk about today is uh are the the first inquisitions so lots of lots of lots of high notes for for people today <laughs> lots of good things uh we got stigmata we got uh children's crusade we got transubstantiation and the early inquisitions now so here here's the thing you the thing about these inquisitions versus the ones that we think of when when most people in Western study think of inquisitions, they're thinking of the later inquisitions. Spanish inquisition. Spanish inquisition in particular. Um, at this period, the inquisitions were focused on identifying and addressing heretics. But I think that has to come with a caveat. Yeah. Many of these popes and priests, as we have determined, know so little about Scripture. Right. And in many cases, because what we're hitting on as we walk through, we're hitting on the standouts who are biblical and are devoted to God. Yeah, and even they have significant theological issues. Yep. By and large, the church is just a means of politic. And when you look at the kinds of things that Innocent is trying to establish, Mm -hmm. the word heretic is not for the maintaining of the purity of the teachings of Scripture. It's often just maintaining 
unity so that I maintain power. Yeah. And the word heretic is basically trying to baptize the destruction of those who would dissent. And so anyone that would be a rebel or a descender, anyone who would be contrary to your opinion, mm-hmm. who would be an opposition, we, we might call them today an opposition party, these people are eliminated in the most holy of fashions because they are heretics. Right. Yeah. Now, admittedly, again, these early inquisitions are not as brutal as the Spanish ones. Not as. Not as. Um, Although they are entirely ungoverned. Oh, well, yeah, they be well. They they become they become out out of hand. the The problem is this. This is this is the tricky. This is the tricky situation of this, because I read up kind of some some Catholic arguments in in favor, not in favor so much in favor, but like kind of as a, who were kind of serving as apologists for this movement. Sure, and and they point out that at this time heresy was technically a crime against the state. So at this time period, tech, again, that's in their legal system. That's left over from, from the late Roman era. Um, and so, again, the church positioned themselves to say that they were intervening to ensure that n- local nobles didn't get out of hand or mob rule didn't get out of hand. So they were going to go and officially examine people to make sure this was legitimate heresy or not, which maybe some of them did. But that's certainly not the way it played out in the long run. Um, two groups in particular kind of get the main focus. Uh, the first are the Cathars. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, they We would have called them heretics. They were Gnostics, essentially. Yep. Um, does that mean you deserve to get burned at the stake? Uh, we would say no. <laughs> but the Catholic Church might disagree on that. Um, and then also, would you, would you hold that in contrast of Priscilla and Aquila <laughs> grabbing Apollos mm. and saying, "Hey, there's you got this thing going on in your theology. Let's mm-hmm. chat about it." Yeah, he's like, "My bad. Yeah. You're right. okay. I didn't know that." The Ephesians that are met on the road and they're like, "Hey, you heard about the baptism of Jesus?" Like, we've only heard the baptism of John. Let me tell you about it. Right, right. These guys are like. You gotta die a painful and horrible death. Well, they were they were, they would be they would be in like so. The first group is the Cathars, who were heretics. The others were the Waldensians, who we talked about last week, which are what I would consider proto-Protestant. And so there is a group that they are not heretics by the definition of heresy. Mm-hmm. They are heretics considered heretics by the Catholic Church simply because they deny the authority of the Catholic Church. Inst- the as an institution um and i mean calling the pope the antichrist is not a good way to make friends um <laughs> so they were they would generally be given an opportunity to renounce their views and they would have to be wear these yellow crosses um to to demonstrate that they were a former heretic who had repented right um, and, and in that case they could be tortured they could but once they confessed mm-hmm. the torture was supposed to stop yeah. You know what you know what this turns out to be? I know you're I know you're trying hard to pull on the reins yeah. and keep me from getting into what it would become. No, just go ahead. The scene from Monty Python's Holy Grail. Yeah. Where the woman is accused of being a witch. Right. 
and they have and the reason the questions are being asked right. how do you know she's a witch she looks like one look at her clothes they dressed me like this <laughs> right well look at her nose that's a witch's nose it's not even real they they put it on me it's a false right? nose yeah these kinds of things you just go in because even from the beginning the accused were never required to uh or never allowed to address their accuser mm-hmm. it was always through an anonymous 1-800 number mm-hmm. and that hotline was protected mm-hmm. and so all you had to do is tell local bishop hey guy over there is not a trinitarian mm-hmm. and so he'd be like that's not true pope's like or the priest there's like well i gotta beat you until you admit that it is true <laughs> like what a way to get at your enemies yeah yeah yeah, and I mean, there again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Quite there, literally, there were <laughs> there were supposed to be rules to stop this. Like I, because I I did read through like some of the, the yeah. sources. There were supposed to be limits on this. There were supposed to be, you know, how many witnesses do you have, and and you know, is this over a personal grudge? And there's all these different things that are supposed to be sorted out. But it just, I mean, we're talking about the Middle Ages here. How even if even if certain bishops and whatnot had good intentions, they they can't maintain control over every little inquisitor. And interestingly enough, the church relied heavily on the Franciscans and the Dominicans in particular to be their inquisitors. And the reason for this was, in part, that these quote-unquote heretical groups tended to all forsake wealth and preach against the opulence of the Roman church. And so the Roman church is smart. They choose the guys in their camp who also have nothing, who are also poor, who are, you know, you know, can identify with the people, the, the, you know, the blue collar peasant class as their main inquisitors, which, uh, I mean, smart move on the Roman church. Um, because if the whole point of a particular movement is like, hey, the Pope shouldn't be, you know, dressed in jewels and these bishops are stealing all your money. But then the inquisitors come and they're like, hey, I don't have any personal property. I'm as broke as you are, but you're a heretic. And unless you renounce, I'm going to kill you. Um, and it, that's, it works better. that's where the manipulation of that. Mm. I just cannot give this any runway for oh, legitimacy. Yeah. Oh, no. When I look at the person of innocent, when I look at the way the church is operating in this time and had been for 800 years, mm-hmm. I have no runway for any level of legitimacy, no yeah. matter who wants to apologize for it. He is not. He's not innocent. And I'm not trying to apologize. I'm not trying to apologize for it. I'm just saying that's that was their reasoning for it. That was their right. stated reasoning for it, is that they, and, and to this day, Catholic historians state that it was for good reasons, but that's false (laughs) well let's wrap it up there thanks for listening this podcast is a resource of memorial baptist church in stratford ontario in cooperation with the gospel coalition of canada and is produced by alex walker take care thomas aquinas next time